Welcome to episode 80 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Falling down for you. There's nothing in this world I wouldn't do. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Jesse, what's happening? I want to start by wishing you a very happy Pi Day, Tony. Yes, happy Pi Day. I didn't eat I any pie, but it's all good. That's part of my affirmation for this week is just embracing and affirming any kind of holiday in which we celebrate math. Oh, see, I, I just celebrate pie, like the food. The food? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm also down for that as well. Although, so embedded within my affirmation is kind of this sneaky denial, I guess, in okay. that why does pie get all of the attention? So in my realm, are you familiar with Euler's number? It's represented by the letter E. Yeah. I mean, as familiar as I am with anything in math. Yeah. It's like this amazing, amazing mathematical concept. Everybody should look it up, but that doesn't get its holiday. I guess because like two point whatever, seven, one, eight, two doesn't actually seem as glorious, but I mean, 3.14, what about, you know, February 17th E day? Yeah. E day. Make yeah, it happen. I don't know. I don't know. Somebody should try. start that. Yeah. I've tried. It hasn't really caught on, obviously. It needs better branding, is what it is. <laughs> yeah. That's so. not my forte. Are you Math kidding me? You, you obtained our logo, which is an awesome logo. So like branding is your thing. I mean, I know people, but when trying to make math exciting sometimes is not easy. That's true. True. Like, I, I'm what's not happening, excited about math. What's happening right now, the awkwardness that I've built into this conversation <laughs> is because I've tried to make math exciting. See, the affirmation's yeah. already fallen flat. It's all good. It's yeah, all so good. save us. What are you affirming this week? So I have, uh, I'm also sneaking something into my affirmation. So I'm going to start off with the sneaky part. I call this like point two. So we'll go back to math, but it's like point two of an affirmation. So I discovered the other day that Ligonier produced... Um, they call it a podcast, but it's not really a podcast. They just had Sinclair Ferguson sit down and read every question and answer from the Westminster Shorter Catechism <laughs> in that like <laughs> deep, rumbly, beautiful, smooth Scottish voice. So like I have all the entire Westminster Shorter Catechism on my phone. I have it set up so it's like in my podcast app. And literally, when I'm on a podcast, it just starts reading me the Westminster Shorter Catechism in Sinclair Ferguson's <laughs> voice. So I, it, I actually have found that it's really helpful because one of the things that we've talked about in the past with um, the confessions and the catechisms is the grammar is so important. And it's really helpful to hear someone who really understands the theology read it because you can hear like the intonation where he pauses, which clause right. he associates. So that's my, um, my point two of a recommendation or of a affirmation is go get that. You can get it on Ligonier's website. Um, it's just awesome. It's like 40 minutes and you re listen through the whole thing. So you could literally do that every day on your way to work. And that would be awesome. Um, my actual affirmation, I want to affirm my wife. Like, All right. I don't have any specific like event or reason that brings this to mind. Um, it's not like she did anything more amazing than usual this week. 
Um, but she just, she's my wife and I love her and she is very patient with me and she keeps her house looking great. She went to Michael's. I made fun of her for going to Michael's sometimes, but she made this beautiful like spring wreath to put on our door just to make our house more than just like a stark building. I mean, I would probably be satisfied to be in like a bare empty building, but like the little touches that she does around the house to keep things looking nice and to keep things clean. I really appreciate those. Man, so I you, should probably tell her that more often, right? but I'm affirming my wife and everything she does for me. Man, you totally affirmation juked me on this one. <laughs> you went with the wife. I was like, hey, math is great. <laughs> Outstanding. Yeah, I can get behind both of those things. And I'm definitely going to pick that up for my phone because I think there is something great about the possibility that Sinclair Ferguson could lull me to sleep at night by reading me the confessions. Yeah, the one... Um complaint I have. And if anybody who has an, uh, a way to fix this could do this, they're all timestamped for exactly the same moment. So they don't in the, if you're downloading it from the RSS feed into your podcast app, they don't download in order. They actually download in reverse order. So I had to like, <laughs> I had to do all sorts of like podcast magic that I've learned from doing this show to get it in the right order. And I would love to share that, but then Ligonier would like sue me into the ground. They probably is wouldn't because like the Bible says don't sue other Christians, but it wouldn't be ethical for me to post their stuff without permission. But if you happen to know someone at Ligonier or if you are someone at Ligonier, just like, just like tweak the timestamp. So it downloads in the right order. Is there a secret message? If you listen to him backwards, I don't think so. In the reverse order. I don't know. Probably something like Scotland is the best. <laughs> England is terrible. And I don't, I don't know, something else. It would be great if Sinclair Ferguson purposely worked that in. Yeah, that'd be pretty cool. So what are you denying today? I'm just going with a name and it's Stephen Furtick. Oh man. <laughs> just, that's it. Boom. That's, yeah. Just, we're going to have I've that been, kind of podcast today. Yeah, we're, we're getting right after it. <laughs> no, no reason in particular. And yet every reason in particular. Yeah. So just, I was actually amazed to find his name recently on a lot of contemporary music. Yes. And I just found that a little bit disturbing, honestly. So I was just thinking, we got to be careful. The things that we listen to, the things that we sing, and the things that we believe. Yeah. This probably isn't the right time to say that we're singing one of those songs in church. We're learning it right now to get ready for Easter. It's the one about <laughs> come to the altar. It's actually like theologically, if you take right. the fact that it, my wife actually said, this says Stephen Furtick on it. Is that like the same Stephen Furtick? <laughs> and I was like, it can't be. It can't be. And she's like, well, I know, it's right? copyright elevation music. I was like, oh my goodness. Yep. This was written by. So then my thought immediately went to like, he obviously knows and can at least generate outwardly good theology. So like, why can't he do that in the pulpit? Exactly. Know. He doesn't really I use a pulpit. had but. the same exact experience. So sometime we'll have to talk about what do we do with music that we know has been influenced by somebody who's teaching. We'd be like, what is going on? But I thought the yeah. same thing. I was like, I'm surprised this thing didn't just burn up in my hand. <laughs> or you didn't like Raiders of the Lost Ark at all. Like your face didn't melt off when you started looking at it. Yeah, that's what I, so I was equally, like you said, surprised to see the name up there because I, there wasn't anything in the lyrics themselves, but I thought, well, this is straight up heresy. Exactly. So, yeah, that's yeah. what I was expecting. So how about you? So I am, uh, this is another one of those sneaky ones where I'm going to sneak a little bit of an affirmation into my denial. I am denying my own incompetency in setting my microphone correctly. So last week, 
uh, we recorded an entire episode, and if you listen to it, you probably noticed. I had my microphone settings to record off of my webcam instead of off of my microphone. So that's why it sounds like I was recording from a porta potty instead of from like my office. <laughs> I'm glad so porta potty as the, the the comparison. Yeah, the affirmation side of that is I didn't have any angry listeners who emailed me or commented about how terrible the sound was. So I either either that means people aren't listening that carefully, uh, which I don't think is the case because we've had lots of emails that indicate people are listening very carefully. But more so, I think it's that our audience really appreciates content over quality. So we strive to deliver high quality audio. But when we fail at that, or when I fail at that, um, people are able to look over. So thank you for your patience. Uh, If there was a way for me to go back and fix it, I would. But I can't. So I won't. It's been a journey. This is 80 episodes. Isn't that incredible? I know it is pretty incredible. And we've only missed one week, and that was because I was at a conference. But other than that, it's been 80 continuous weeks of podcasting. Yeah, it's crazy. If we were a person, we'd be receiving Social Security for quite some time now and probably retired. Yeah. Are you telling me that our our show's over or what? (laughs) (laughs) No, I was going to say maybe we'd be dead. But, you know, retired seemed better. Yeah, I mean, the Lord has just been faithful in our show, like in small ways. But it's funny because when I first started, when we first started doing the podcast, I, you know, I'd like read everything I could about podcasting. I listened to everything. And the vast majority of podcasts, they call it pod fading, where like you, they just stop producing content and they, that's not like they plan to shut down the show. It just, they just stop making it. The vast majority of podcasts pod fade after or within 10 episodes. Wow. And I, I don't know about you, but I never felt, that tension. I mean, there's been times where it's like trying to figure out when we're going to podcast or when to do the editing sometimes is difficult, but I've never felt like, oh man, we just can't keep going. And the other thing that's amazing is they say that the first hundred subscribers is the most difficult. Once you cross that threshold, things kind of ramp up. And we started, I think with like 95 regular downloads. So we, I don't know, God has just been really faithful to bless our show. And we're really thankful for that. Right on. It's actually kind of a pretty good segue into our mm-hmm. conversation, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I mean, I, I, um, I can't do a good segue if I'm trying, but apparently, if I'm not, it, it's just smooth <laughs> like butter. <laughs> that is the segue that comes from the spirit, mm-hmm. moving. So, Jesse, this is your topic that we're doing. <laughs> I had a different, I had a different a topic in mind, and you were like, "No, let's do this instead." So, what are we talking about tonight? That was a good conversation. All right, so check this out. So, the genesis of me wanting to talk about this with you is, I was reading the Westminster Confession of Faith again, going through some of the chapters. Oh yeah. And there was a chapter that I've read before, but for whatever reason, this time I came upon it, and it just hit me like upside the head. And it wasn't that it was particularly theologically technical. I just felt it was very convicting and in a way that I hope will be informative, not just for me, but for like the larger group. So so here's the deal. One of the things I love about the Reformed tradition is that it really puts a premium on the articulation of what we believe. And so because what we believe is really firmly rooted in expression that is either in the creeds or just that we have, again, to a nuanced degree, expressed what we believe, that tends to lead to strong conviction, naturally, right? I mean, it's impossible to have convictions on stuff that you have not really articulated or documented. That's true. And so because of that, I was thinking this week about this strange occurrence where 
sometimes, and I mean no disrespect to Arminians, but sometimes if like you're just part of kind of your standard, without being pejorative, plain vanilla kind of evangelical church in America, you can have the experience where if you come into contact with the doctrines of grace or you get to know somebody who is from the quote-unquote reformed tradition, you might suddenly say, wait a second, I was Arminian this whole time. I had no idea. Yeah. But have you ever heard the opposite thing happen? Like somebody attending a Presbyterian church all their life and then all of a sudden they're like, wait a second, this is reformed? I've been reformed this entire time. <laughs> I mean, I kind of had that experience, but I don't think it's, it's not typical. Right. It's not. And, and even if the label isn't clear, there's probably a different sensibility about the things that you either know you should believe or the things that you know you believe. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I, I think sometimes Reformed folk, um, I wish that I could say that the theological camp that you land in had nothing to do with personality. But that's just not really the case. So our our unique personalities drive us to study scripture a particular way, to hold convictions a particular way. And those kinds of personality quirks or characteristics do tend to push us one way or another. That's not to say that um, people who don't have those kind of dominant characteristics can't end up in one camp or another. And I think with the Reformed, it attracts or maybe it's produced by people particularly who are analytical, they're intellectual, they desire to study, they love to read. Um, everyone that I know who's come into the Reformed tradition, um, they had those characteristics, and it was those characteristics that ultimately sort of pushed them there. Well, I, I was reading a ton of theology, and I just saw this common theme coming up. Or, right. well, you know, I just, I really dug into the scripture, and when I, when I tried to put together what the most logical synthesis was, I came out with Reformed theology. That's not to say there aren't people who come in other venues. Um but predominantly that's the way it is. So I think you're right that that reform people tend to have more specific nuances and more specific definitions than some other breeds of Christianity or flavors of Christianity. And that's where it gets interesting for me because that means that we generally speaking are going to know what we believe and at least think we know why we believe that thing and be firmly committed to it because it's been documented and articulated in a very crisp way, in a very right. logical way as well. Yeah, absolutely. So the question is then are we good at interacting with Christians that are maybe not as strong in that articulation? And sometimes this comes across in reformer circles as we kind of feign maturity because we're like, well, I know what I believe and I've got yeah. all these sources and I've really thought this through and it seems like you haven't. So if you believe something that's different than me, it just means you're not as mature. Not right. that you're even incorrect. So here's where this all came to a head with the Westminster Confession of Faith. Really super long introduction. Um, when I read the Westminster Confession of Faith, I often think, hey, these dudes are pretty much like me. You know, like we, in theory, believe a lot of the same things. Part of that's because I'm agreeing with what they're articulating. And then I get to chapter 26 and I think, wait a second. I think it's possible <laughs> that they have a stronger sense of the communion of the saints than I actually do. And that's partially because I tend to want to push against other traditions in the Christian faith in a way that I thought, hey, these guys would be on my side. And it turns out they might not be entirely. So we, we should just read like the first couple of points. Do you think that'd be helpful sure. discussion? Sure. I, uh, I was thinking about trying to do a Scottish accent, but I'm going to pass on that because <laughs> it's terrible. It's 
Quick side note, after listening to Sinclair Ferguson read the Westminster Confession for like 45 minutes the other day, I actually went back to my desk at work and looked up how to do a Scottish accent. Because I, I wanted to learn how to do it, but I don't think I'm going to be able to. So I'm just going to read. It's chapter 26. I'll read um, articles 1 and 2. So article 1 says, All saints that are united to Jesus Christ, their head, by his spirit and by faith, have fellowship with him in his graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory. And being united to one another in love, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces and are obliged to the performance of such duties public and private, as do conduce to their mutual good, both in the inward and outward man. And then Article 2 reads, Saints by profession are bound to maintain a holy fellowship and communion in the worship of God, and in performing such other spiritual services as tend to their mutual edification, as also in relieving each other in outward things according to their several abilities and necessities, which communion, as God offereth opportunity, is to be extended to all those who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus. So I was absolutely floored by this because for whatever reason, when it came to me this time, all I could see was the practical outworkings of what they're saying. And I think that there might be other people like me who read this and think that is a little bit different than how I seek to engage with others that are of different theological backgrounds. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that this does, there's, there's an obligation inherent in these two articles that I don't think we often think about. Right. That not only are we obligated to like, try to get along with each other which is i think the way that like that's like the bare minimum it's most like the christians, minimum right right but that that ends up actually turning into like the maximum that most christians strive for as well yes i'm going to try to be nice to the armenians online and i'm saying this as someone who frequently like 15 minutes before we started this podcast am in heated aggressive theological debate online so i'm not always good at this but there's an obligation embedded in these um, articles that I think goes so far above and beyond what most Christians, even Reformed Christians, maybe especially Reformed Christians, right, uh, strive for that it really should humble us a little bit. And that's the tension. I'm glad you brought that up that way. This is kind of like us just throwing all of our confession out on the table that you know, Reformed theology tends, tends to appeal to a certain type of personality, mm-hmm. and also that it means that we can tend to be argumentative. Not that you were in that case, but I bring that up to say, the tension is in areas of doctrine and theology, somebody's right and somebody's wrong. Right. And yet at the same time, what's expressed here is just beyond being cordial or just being nice or placating somebody. Because for me, it's really easy to systematically exclude from the community of the saints, people in churches and denominations and Facebook groups for that matter, who do not believe what I believe. I mean, I'm just being honest. Yeah. I mean, I think that's my default position. And I almost expected not that, the confessions would kind of get my back on that. But these guys are so charitable with the way that they're understanding by saying like, we're bound together. I mean, there are of course like foundational non-negotiable gospel truths. That's why Paul writes in Corinthians, there are things of first importance, but I struggle with like, where is this line? How do we interact with, with each other where we can legitimately say, I do believe that what you're, th- you're saying is incorrect, but at the same time, I'm not going to let that influence me, in a, even in a subtle way, to think of a brother and sister as less a part of my family. Yeah. Yeah, and I think maybe a good first, um, first line to draw is that 
if you ever found yourself in a situation where you were unwilling to come to the aid, like temporal aid, if you were unwilling to make a meal for somebody or sit down and and pray with them because of a theological difference, that's not a first order difference, right? right? That's, That's what strikes me is that the first part of this, all saints that are united to Jesus Christ as their head by his spirit and by faith, there's a restriction in this clause. It's not all people who claim to be united to Jesus Christ. Exactly. It's all people who are actually united to Jesus Christ as their head by his spirit and by faith. And, you know, you read in Galatians, um, it says, like, we should do good to all people, but we should especially do good to those who are members of the families of believers. So there's this restrictive clause, but within that family of believers, if there's ever a point where I would feel like I couldn't sit down and pray with someone who is struggling, or I wouldn't be willing to step up to the plate and offer someone a ride to work if they needed it because of a theological difference I have. That's not a first order difference. That's not a difference that puts you outside of the faith. That That's a problem. And I think there are lots of times that we let our kind of em- reform people, um, we have our crisp definitions, and sometimes I think we love to think, and I'm probably the chief of sinners on this, but we love to think that we can be dispassionate about theology, that we can come at this with cool heads. Right. But this area, theology, is often the area where we have the hottest heads. Exactly. Right? I am much more likely to get ang- angry, not not just frustrated or upset, but actually angry at somebody um, because of a theological disagreement than I am over almost anything else. Right. You could probably like insult me and call me names. And I'm less likely to get angry about that than if you hold a theological view that's different than me. And that's a weakness in myself. But if I ever come to the point where I'm saying like, well, forget about you. I don't care what happens to you. I'm not going to help you with anything. That's a problem. Um, And I think maybe that's a good kind of like first layer to think about is the person you're interacting with, whether it's in person or over Facebook or over, you know, Twitter or whatever other medium. If your disagreement is such that you are ready to kind of abandon them to the consequences of their life without seeking to intervene as you can, then are you really in the right spot spiritually with that? And presumably your anger is coming from, so to speak, like a justified source. Like you're upset because you have a strong conviction about a particular theological point and believe that's being misrepresented to the detriment of God himself, right? So there's some reason that we would say it's, I don't want to say it's right, but we understand why we get upset like that. Right. But how do we prioritize that relationship? Because I think you're right. The first order of things is to make sure that we're caring for one another. I think the more nuanced and harder thing is to manage relationships where we look at other Christians and we say, listen, they may have defective theological views, They may not understand the primacy of grace over faith, something huge like that. May have different views on Genesis, even stranger views about the end times. They may like have dramatic understanding of charismatic gifts, but if they hold to Christ the head, then they are family, full stop. Yeah. That's really hard. That that psychological piece that says, you know, it is one thing to say, I, I recognize, I can set aside at critical points or in times of tragedy differences of theological opinion on minor things to help somebody. But how do we keep our headspace in good conviction and with a clean conscience when we're interacting with people? Yeah. 
And, and I mean, on one level, I'm just going to drop that for you to answer. <laughs> I was kind of uh, like I, talking, asking I mean, out loud, but I may not be the right person to ask that since I, I guess I, I probably don't frequently do that as well as I should. But on one level, there should be like a standard of, um, I don't know what the word is. Charity is not quite the right word. There should be a standard of willingness to serve other people that happens regardless of what their theological convictions are, right? If if an atheist calls me, an atheist friend that I have from work calls me and says, um, my kid is in the hospital and my car is broken down and I need a ride to see them, or I need... I need someone to take me to the grocery store because I need to buy groceries and my car is broken. I should be willing to do that regardless of of what they say. Now, th- there's a there's a place for breaking not just fellowship, but even like temporal friendship over, over issues like this. Of course. Um, there might be a time where you have to say, this person is so hostile towards everything that I believe is vital to, to human flourishing that I can no longer maintain a friendship with them. That that's that's a reality, but in situations where, where you haven't reached that point, um, for example, uh, a, a coworker of mine who's not a believer is, I wouldn't say as hostile to the idea of theology any more than the average non-believer is, but if they called me and said, "Look, um, I need a ride to the car dealership because my car's broken down," I would be more than happy to help, and I should be more than happy to help, um, even more so in matters of less trivial significance. But especially when we're talking about Christians, um, there has to be this baseline level of willingness to help, willingness to serve, willingness to encourage. And I'm not always sure how do we maintain that because it's very easy for me, especially in a digital age where I can literally block someone on Facebook that I interact with from on the other end of the country. And for all intents and purposes, they don't exist to me anymore. Right, exactly. I can make it so they, as far as my digital footprint goes, they can't see me, I can't see them, and I can completely forget about them. Now, there are times that that's appropriate. There are times where the best thing you can do for the unity of the body is just to say, look, we're not going to get along and we need to just go our separate ways and trust that when we see each other in the resurrection that we're going to shake hands and hug. But for now, because of sin, we can't do that. Um but I don't necessarily know what the solution is to, to that. I don't know what the answer to your question is. I wish I did. Maybe you should tell me. Well, that's because I just like totally put you on blast there. We're trying to answer <laughs> that. I actually think that where I was thinking was it kind of where you were going with that. I do think, kind of like you said, that servanthood is the critical mass of unity in the church. And when I look at this and I look at my own heart, I'm reminded that you know this idea of being self-centered, self-aggrandizing self-glorifying pride, that's basically the hallmark of most earthly endeavors. Like even if the yeah. people you see who are super philanthropic, there is some element of self baked into even the good things that they're doing. I mean, it's all just glittering sin, right? Yeah. But I think like the church, we've got like exogenous threats from the outside, the government, culture, teaching. But what's strange to me is I think the one that's on the inside that is the threat is this selfishness and pride. And how like digital media plays into this and social networking is really interesting to me and how we embrace that in accordance with understanding what's being said in chapter 26 of the Westminster. So, you know, if we look at Paul and we're trying to say we need to get right-mindedness on this because it's not just about whether we can show that we care by doing good things, which is definitely appropriate, like you said. But for me, it's, it's trying to get this attitude where my default is not, hey, this group needs to be set straight. But instead, like, these are my people. We're fighting for under the same banner. Right. We're heading for the same heavenly country. 
we're washed in the same blood. How do I get there? And I think, for what you said, servanthood is that critical mass, which is why Paul is saying in Philippians, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Yeah. And how he just implores them to alleviate that threat of selfishness, which is going to wreak havoc in their church by saying, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility mind with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves so it's interesting to me that in that passage which is like off were quoted you have paul saying have this mind which is yours in jesus christ almost like right. it's already there for you to grasp by the power of the spirit yeah and i'm wondering how often like i pray to that end or we work to that end or when somebody drops into a a facebook is it discussion i'm not really on facebook so <laughs> what do we what do you call those things <laughs> I think we call it a thread usually. Okay. So when you drop wow. into Facebook. Can we just pause for a second thread. and just recognize what just happened? <laughs> I just, Jesse, you are so I'm uh, out of touch, technologically man. advanced in so many ways, but you are such a troglodyte when it comes to social media. And I I'm love you, everything about that. I'm out of touch. I love it touch. so much. It's great. I'm out of touch. But anyways, in those, carry on. No, in those situations, what is it that we do? Um, to just got the worst Charlie horse ever. <laughs> oh, this is the best podcast we've ever done. Oh, see, this I'm, not, is what, I'm not editing that out. No, you, you shouldn't do that. I don't know what my face just looks like, but for some reason, the conviction of being a troglodyte in social media <laughs> just caused my quad to cramp up like a champ. You need some more water. Man, that was rough. All right, so over to you, Tony. Please. <laughs> well, maybe a maybe a practical tip because like I said, I'm not the I'm not the best at this, but one thing that I found personally that really does help me is um trying to find ways to make the connection more embodied. So one of the things that happens as we we interact on social media is people become sort of disembodied from from reality. Sure. So rather than interacting with a, a whole person, I'm interacting with just the just the thoughts basically of a person. I'm not interacting with their emotions. I'm not interacting with their their physical presence. I'm not even really interacting with their words in a strict sense. I'm interacting almost purely with their thoughts as they're expressed by the words. So I found that ways to re sort of re-embody that person are really helpful. So maybe it is as simple as um, going to their actual Facebook page and learning a little bit about them. That might seem stalkerish to people, but when I'm in a real heated conversation with somebody, I take time to go to their Facebook page. I figure out, I look at, you know, obviously like you can't always see everything, but where do they work? What kinds of things do they like? Do they have a family? Um, I look at a few of their, their profile pictures because those are kind of assumed to be public. What kind of things do I see in there? You know, sometimes I feel like this person likes to hunt. This person is passionate about, um, this arts and craft, or they like this TV show. And it starts to build a much more holistic view of the person that I'm interacting with. And I learned that I start to interact with them more like a person than I interact with, um, an article in a journal. Because I come from a sort of an academic background, I tend to approach everything, especially when it's in writing, as though it's a journal article to be critiqued or a book to be assessed or analyzed or a, an argument to respond to. And that's not always the case. A lot of times people are putting their thoughts out there because they're trying to figure stuff out. On, you're trying to figure it out. 
and they, they don't have the same background as you. And right. maybe they have background that makes them more insightful in a particular situation than you do. You don't know that unless you take time or something as simple as like trying to um, set up a phone call or a voice chat or a video chat with them. So you know what their voice sounds like. You understand the intonation of their voice. Um, that can make a huge difference in how you interact with someone or, or experience them online when you can put a voice to their words or you can put some some background to their history that really can help from a practical level. See, that's good stuff. I wish I was better at it, to be that honest. That was, well, so, I mean, so do I. I mean, I, I was so convicted that my legs were cramping up during <laughs> that. But I think that that's fantastic because I, I want to ask, like when I'm talking with people, am, is my objective here to want to diffuse explosive divisions? Do I really want to bring repair to fractured relationships? Am I at odd with my own church or somebody in my church? Am I building factions? I mean, I, I want to get away yeah. from that. And I like this idea of moving away from abstraction. And there's something like inherently lovely and biblical about that because the family as God gives it to us and Jesus models for us is not one that is abstract. It is an actual relationship. So we have the natural family and then God says, I'm going to do you one better. Here's the supernatural family. And it has all the things impounded in it that are in the natural family, but it's better and more bonded. Yeah. And doing the things you said, kind of pull it out of this. The digital realm is totally an abstraction for us. And this makes it, gives it some shoe leather, gives it some sense of reality that we're, we're dealing with people and not just people, but again, I, it, we need to remember we have more in common than our believing brothers and sisters right now in Zimbabwe than we do with our non-believing neighbors who live next door. Right. And that's a reality. I think we always have to kind of keep marinating ourselves in. Yeah, and I think the other thing too to to go back to the confession, you know, one of the things that strikes me is in article article 2 of this chapter, it says saints by profession are bound to maintain a holy fellowship. So we don't, you know, we we sometimes need to say um for the sake of that holy fellowship, for the sake of the peace of the church and for peace between us, interacting with each other is is not going to accomplish that. Right. So this isn't saying you have to maintain regular interactions. It's saying that you have to maintain fellowship and communion with each other. You can't refuse to consider someone a brother. You can't refuse to worship alongside them unless, you know, if there's sin issues, that's different. But you can't, it's, it's not appropriate to leave a church because you have a conflict with another Christian in that church. Right. Exactly. That's a real practical outflow, and that happens all the time. It does. That somebody has a conflict with person A, we can't get along, and so person B leaves and goes to another church. Well, that is that is excluded by this. But the, the clause that caught me is it says, and in performing such other spiritual services as tend to their mutual edification. And the first thing that comes to mind is a spiritual service that I can perform for my brothers and sisters that tends to our mutual edification is prayer. Right? So... When I'm having a heated conversation with someone online, and I've made a practice um, in in the past, anytime I mention a person in any light on my blog or in this show, anytime I make any comment about another Christian by name, I do not do that unless I'm committed to praying for that person on a regular basis for an extended period of time. So there are some Christians that I have been extremely vocal of, and maybe Christians isn't the right term anymore, but there are some public figures that I have been extremely vocal to criticize. William Lane Craig, 
Tulian Chavillian, Mark Driscoll. Um, you could probably add John Frame and Scott Oliphant to that. There are people that I am committed to pray for now because I have taken time to publicly comment on their theology. In some cases, I've taken time to publicly comment on their morals and ethics in the case of, of Tulian. But that means that I need to be obligated as well to pray for them, especially if they are fellow believers in Christ. Like I said, I, I would not consider Tulian Chavidian to be a, a Christian. He is a fugitive from church discipline as far as I'm concerned. And Matthew 18 tells us that someone who flees from church discipline has fled from the church and opting out of church discipline is opting out of the church. Right. And the same is true for Mark Driscoll. But in the case of like um, Wayne Grudem or William Lane Craig or Bruce Ware or any of these other people that have been critical of their theology, I make a commitment to pray for those people regularly. And although I am coming to some conclusions on some of those people that their errors are putting them outside of the faith, until I'm willing to say that, I need to pray for them as brothers, that God would correct and um, would save them from their error, right? Because persistent theological right. error in certain areas, particularly in the areas that these men have errors in, that is something that will will remove you from the faith. Not that God uh, loses his saints, but that is something that disqualifies you as a Christian if you persist in that error. So when I pray for these men, I'm praying that God would rescue them from their own error, that he would rescue them from, in some cases, the, the arrogance to dismiss what the church has always taught. But that act of praying for them and begging God to save them so they will see, save them from the error, and in, in some cases, save them in a soteriological justification sense, that makes me look at them a whole different way. Right. I regularly shed tears when I think about the consequences that some of these men may face if they persist in their error. And that just changes your whole perspective on, on a situation, I think. Yeah, it certainly does. And I think that's basically what is trying to come out in that chapter. That kind of behavior, that kind of mindedness. So if we're seeking after the mind of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, and I think that's being demonstrated outwardly, in submission and humility to one another. Prayer is a big part of that because prayer is a humbling experience as we've talked about before. Yeah. And I see in that, especially as this time of year, as we tend to focus on both the death and resurrection of Jesus, what always gets me every time is this idea, as simple as it is, and as, as profound as everybody knows it, that Jesus existed in the glory and the splendor of the deity in the second person of the Trinity. He shared that supreme position with the Father and the Spirit. But what always gets me is he did not exploit it for his own personal interests. Like we would expect yeah. God to use that somehow to please himself because there's actually no higher goal than for God to be pleased. Right. So it almost shows me that the principle we must follow is to not consider our advantages, position, gifts as anything for glory, but these are actual assets to serve others always. So we may have like a high social position in a community and that's great. You may be a leader in a high position in your church, have a prestigious degree, but when we look at other believers, I think our default position should be that our hearts want to serve them. Yeah. And that's a hard thing because it's easy to say, it's easy to put ourselves in the place of idols. Like, I've got this going on. I'm pretty mature. I'm pretty sure I'm right in this discussion. But what kind of condescension does it take to show that we are taking Jesus at his word when he says, be like me, that that's yeah. the hard thing. So I think what you gave there are some really good examples, like checking ourselves, like maybe it's okay to, in a Facebook thread, to <laughs> sometimes just 
not be right for the sake of serving and being humble. I mean, and that's hard to say because we might have a very strong theological conviction on a kind of open-handed issue. We're not talking about the, you know, the stuff that's of like prime importance, but it's really difficult just to kind of roll over on that because it makes it seem like we're weak or yeah. we're, we're not really that passionate about it. Or to, is it hard to like let somebody walk away and be wrong? Do you yeah. know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And I mean, some of that is the context of the conversation, right? If if you're in a group that's, so the Reform Pub is what comes to mind. If you're in a group that's dedicated to discussing theology and having discussions and debates and arguments about theology, it's a little different to sort of like slug it out and insist on continuing the argument to try to convince somebody. Sure, that's fine. But there are lots of times that people put something theological up on Facebook without thinking or without intending to. And they're not trying to have a theological debate. They're trying to share a thought about something. Right. And that, that is especially prominent in, um, in tragedy, right? In situations like this school shooting, there are all sorts of people who made all sorts of theological comments that it may not be the right thing at the time to correct their view of God's providence in the moment. Right. right. It may not right. be, it may not be, um, the right thing at the right time, you know, Billy Graham comes to mind. There were all sorts of people that just took Billy Graham's death as an opportunity to point out all the terrible things that were wrong with Billy Graham's theology. Right. And I, I am not in any sense saying that, uh, that Billy Graham's theology was perfect. I think everyone would know where I have strong disagreements with the theology of Billy Graham, serious questions and serious concerns. But the day after he dies, right? And I, I would, I would love to do this study if I had money to actually do this study in time. I would love to interview every person in the Reform Pub, right? There's twenty thousand people in there, and trace their spiritual lineage and figure out how many of those people's spiritual lineage points back to Billy Graham at some point. For sure. But then we have some of those same people who, in a temporal sense, owe their salvation to the ministry of Billy Graham. People are coming out of the woodworks to say, my grandmother, the first Christian in her whole family, became a Christian at a Billy Graham crusade, and everyone following her has been a Christian, or my great-grandmother, or whatever. Those same people are, are sometimes um, using opportunities like that to try to capitalize. It's like they use those and they exploit those opportunities, right? Or they use, um, everybody gets mad when there's a school shooting and immediately we have people talking about gun control, but they don't get mad when we have people immediately using that to, um, to prove a point about human depravity. Like, can't we just sit in the ashes for a little while and and weep? Right. So I think that reading the context that you're in, um, and, and understanding when it's appropriate and when it's not. Um, you know, I had an experience with, I have a friend who I went to seminary with who um, is, a, is a school teacher in Florida, like 40 minutes from where the shooting happened. And I, she said something on her wall and it wasn't even a theological correction, but I messaged her and I was doing it out of like the best possible intentions. I think uh, she was speaking from a place where she was making an error and her argument was being undercut by the mistake that she was making in her argumentation. So I messaged her basically to say, Hey, just so you know, uh, this point that you made is, is not true and it's undercutting your argument. And it was five seconds after I hit send that I realized like this really isn't what she needs right now. She needs me to tell her that I'm, I'm glad she's safe and that I'm sorry that this happened in her community and that I'm praying for her. 
Right. And I was able to, I mean, I was able to kind of course correct and, and we were very close friends in seminary, friends of Ashley's. And so I was able to kind of course correct and, and sort of remedy that. But how many times do we do something like that on Facebook, on someone's page? Um, you know, I think about like someone who's, who announces on Facebook, they're having a really tough time because they're, they're going through a really tough divorce. Well, yeah, divorce is wrong. And in most cases in America, divorce is not done on biblical grounds. And so there's a time and place to say, sorry that you're having this tough time with your divorce, but maybe you should seek God's will and try to reconcile. But also there's a time to say, I'm just really sorry that you're having a tough time. I'm sorry that your marriage is falling apart. And I can't even imagine how painful that is. Right. Right? It's not always about scoring the theological point. In, in fact, unless you're in a situation where the point is to score theological points, Maybe it should almost never be about scoring. Yeah, theological exactly. Points. That's where I think I'm. I'm feeling more these days, right? That, that's what's tough is even in places like where there is space for ro- robust discussion. Do we ever get to the place where it's become so heated that we feel the other person is kind of our enemy, even though yeah. we know we're both Christians? Like on that particular matter, and this happens all the time with things like baptism, for instance. Like even the yeah. joking has like a sometimes a real subtext. That we're kind of expressing that you're not in my circle and I perceive you as that way. And I think that that cannot help but be manifested in our actions, even if we think, well, I can compartmentalize. Like, really? Yeah, of course, I know they're my brother and sister in Christ. But the thing is, how do we know that if we're not actually acting like it, even when we're having serious discussions about it? Yeah. 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 And even in those contexts where you do, where where the point is to score a theological point. Um, th- there's a phrase that I sometimes use. Um, you know, sometimes there is a context to do theological battle, like real actual combat, theological combat to get your sword wet with the, the proverbial blood of your enemy, right? When you're facing a heretic, right. you don't you don't hold back. You don't pull your, your punches. And there are times even in context where you're interacting with Christians, you still shouldn't pull your punches, right? If I'm, if I'm interacting with somebody who seems like they're denying the simplicity of God and resulting in tritheism, I'm not pulling my punches. I'm going to hit them as hard as I can with the scripture and hopefully it'll knock some sense into them. Right. But in most cases, especially in like theological debating groups or like Twitter, those kinds of things, in most cases, you should be using a training sword. Right. The point is to the point is for everybody to get sharper and better at their craft and the craft being theology, not to wound the person that you're interacting with. If I'm if I'm a fencing instructor and I stab my student in the arm with a real sharp blade, I'm not doing my job very well. Instead, I should be teaching them how to defend themselves. I should be teaching them how to you know go on the attack, those kinds of things. Right. Um, and and. In any, I think in my experience of very limited instruction in various things, a good instructor is also learning from their student, right? So even if you're in a situation where you're you're you see yourself as kind of the teacher in in an interaction, which is fine, that happens online, um, you should still be seeking to learn from the person you're interacting with as well. Yeah, as much as there is a challenge to be bound together in unity, there's also the challenge to be able to give a defense. So they're not mutually right. exclusive, like you're saying. I think the thing we need to pay attention to is the root. And it's okay, of course, to come hard. And I think that the gospel requires us to do that. Like you said, from time to time, the question and the defining characteristic is why do we come hard? Is it just to win? Is it just to idolize ourselves? Or is it because there is a genuine sense of love that this is the real truth? And we are very concerned 
for people that either do not know it or abuse it right. at whatever level. And I think once we get there, we can come strong knowing that like what you're saying there is like we wound to heal in a sense. Right. Um, th- there's something that I think follows in the loving kindness of God when we take it that way. I mean, think about how insane it is, honestly, that anybody would go have surgery done. Have we talked about this? <laughs> like, it just seems insane to me because when you're talking, this is just common in our culture because of how prevalent medicine is and how much we trust it. But just think about somebody saying to you, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to inflict a wound on you or purposely cut you open, right. get all up in there. And then I'm going to suture that bad boy up and you are going to feel better after yeah. this process. Like yeah. that's an insane thing. I'd be like, if, if cutting wasn't such a legitimate thing in our culture by way of medicine, I would be like, get away from me. Yeah, exactly. So it, I feel like there's, there's some of what you're saying, I think, in that way. Like it's not just to cut, like you said, I like what you said, to wound or to debilitate, but to hopefully bring about some healing through that. But we, we often have to really check ourselves that that's exactly what we're doing and that we haven't idolized ourselves into a place where we've said, or we're thinking in an argument, like, do you know who I am? Like, really? Yeah. This, this is like, you should be listening to me and, you know, you should be putting away your dumb little argument. Um, I like this comment or this quote rather from Ian Hamilton, which is from his book, The Gospel Shaped Life. And this kind of hit me hard in the context of looking at the Westminster. He just says simply, the moment we identify the Christian faith with our particular church or denomination or confession of faith, that moment we become a sect and not a true church of Jesus Christ. Right. And when I read that, I was just like, boom, why do you guys with accents throw it down (laughs) so hard? Yeah. Yeah, Ian Hamilton, he's one of those people that um, I wasn't really fully aware of. And then I heard him at a Ligonier um, National Conference. He did a deli- like a, he delivered a sermon or a lecture or whatever. And it was like, why have I not been listening to this person my entire life? Man, he, he just is comes such, with such the gospel. Gold. Yeah. You can, get, you can get a feed of Ian Hamilton on Sermon Feed. That's just every sermon that goes on Sermon Feed that's Ian Hamilton. And it's like my favorite. Sermon, man, sermon audio. That's like, we'll just add another affirmation. You can get everything on sermon audio. Just go, you can get a sermon feed. You can make a custom RSS feed for a specific individual. It's amazing. Anyway, that's a sidebar. No, that's great. And of course, like the wonderful irony is he's basically kind of, I think, commenting on this chapter from the Westminster Confession. And yet that is a hard truth, what he's just said there. So it's again, it's not like we shy away from those things. But you trust, if you've heard his preaching, which obviously you have, that here's a man who follows closely after the Lord Jesus Christ and yeah. loves the family. And he's trying to you know, wound us to bring healing. If, if we take offense to that, if we take some umbrage or we bristle at that, it very well could be because we've taken even a confession of faith and we've idolized it to the extent where we say, this is the group that's in for me if you believe this. And if you don't, then you're not exactly fully part of the family. You're a stepchild. Yeah. Like maybe you're in, but you're not in in the way that I would like you to be. And yeah. I think that's a good challenge. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, maybe a, a closing thought because we're getting close to our time is I I have said it before, but I, I more commonly I see people say it that like th- there'll be an interaction online and it, it may be that the, the it gets a bit aggressive or somebody starts to go after the person. So the argument or whatever, and some third party will frequently step in and say like, Hey, you really need to be nicer or you really need to like show a little more Christian charity. And inevitably one of the responses is like, 
oh man, if you think I'm bad, would you need to get your head around what Luther would say? <laughs> and and I I like I said I've uh. said that I've used that, and there's a certain level of like yeah, like political correctness, general politeness sometimes gets in the way of the kind of like theological battle that we have to do. Right. Jude says to contend for the faith. Right. It's, contend is it, the, the language there is not like, Oh, let's have a cordial discussion. It's like, let's get at it. Let's, let's throw down some theological fisticuffs for the faith. Like that's what he's saying. And, and there's some question in my mind. I'm actually going to be um, preaching on Jude in a, a couple weeks here. And I think contending to for the faith in that case is really more along the lines of like, just, being a Christian, like living the faith. It's not always as much like, let's have like, let's go after the heretics kind of thing. It's, it's that, but I don't think that's the, the main thing, but contending for the faith is not a casual friendly thing at times. Right. But at the same time, like, I don't know that Luther is really someone we should be emulating in terms of how we interact with other Christians online. Right. Sometimes we have to be aggressive. Sometimes this might be controversial. Sometimes you need to say something rude to somebody to get them to snap out of their stupor. Sure. Right. When Luther calls the Pope like a, like a poopy head or a farter or whatever, you know, in much more aggressive, <laughs> abrasive, you know, sour language than that. That is his style though. Like there was a time and a place to say that. And Luther, Luther was kind of the crazy, the crazy step uncle of the Reformation, right? He he said outlandish things. He did outlandish things. Even even for like 15th and 16th century standards, he was over the top. Calvin is much more restrained, but even Calvin at times can be kind of vicious. Right. Um, but for the most part. Both Calvin and Luther were dealing with people that they believed were not Christians. Exactly. That's so the difference. For, for Calvin um, to call someone a name or to call them an idiot, call them stupid, maybe he shouldn't have done that. Maybe he should. But if you're if you're having that attitude towards other people that you say like, well, yeah, you're a Christian whom Christ died for, but you're also a tool. Maybe we should reconsider that approach right. a little bit. I totally agree. This is about recognizing identity. So you have siblings. I have siblings. Yeah. I know how it was in your family, but with me and my brothers, whenever we went at it and we disagreed or vehemently fought with one another, never at any point during that process was there a thought that this would disassociate us as brothers. In fact, we right. knew that we were always going to be brothers. And maybe that's part of the reason why we got so upset and annoyed with each other is we could not dissolve that unity. But at the end yeah. of the day, the fact of the matter was, it was, it was something that couldn't be changed. And so maybe that's kind of the way we have to come to sometimes is like, this can't be changed. You're in the family, I'm in the family, and it's okay for us to contend with one another in so much as we understand that we are actually sons and daughters of the king. So yeah. this was a good reminder for me. This chapter was kind of just smacked me upside the head because it was kind of like a, a really good reminder that the Westminster Divines, for as specific and as hard and as rigorous and as confrontational as they are with, with other things, also balance that in a wonderful way by saying, remember that you're striving under the same faith, that you should be standing shoulder to shoulder for the gospel across your denominations. If Jesus is your head, you should be going in the same direction and you should yeah. be loving on one another. Yeah, and and even even the confession itself is a consensus document, right? Right. So there are there are aspects and lines and clauses in the confession that were specifically crafted 
so that people who disagree on a subject could both agree to the, to the confession. Right. And some people might view that as like a form of theological compromise. And that's because it is. Right? Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes we have to say, look, we don't agree, but we have to come to some sort of um, unity within our disagreement. Right. And I think some of the, the consensus clauses, right, we've talked about like the superlapsarian, infralapsarian issue. The vast majority of the Westminster divines were infralapsarians and the language reflects that. But they, they rather than just say like, well, you superlapsarians need to get out of our faces. So either sign on to this infralapsarian document or get out. They said, no, we're going to work hard to craft a document because this is not a primary issue. We're going to work hard to craft a document that you can sign on to in good conscience. We're not asking you to just like wink at the document. We wrote a document that you can actually in good conscience sign on to. And a lot of times that takes more theological skill to craft those statements. The council of the the Nicene Creed is like that. For sure. It takes more skill and patience and love to have that kind of theological interaction than it is to just draw battle lines. That's easy. Drawing battle lines is real simple. Seem, that seems like something beautifully Jesus-like in that. And I love that. Yeah. That That is a great place to draw this to an end, Tony. That was yes. beautiful. Also, I want to just affirm you. I love how you have this wonderful way when we're getting near the end of the hour, kind of like a good counselor to be like, well, our time is almost over. So maybe a good concluding thought would be, I love that. And then we go on for like another 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah. I, I usually... so. Have you ever heard of the Minnesota goodbye? Have I ever told you about this? No. What is this? It's maybe more of a general Midwestern thing, but we always call it the Minnesota goodbye. So when you go to say goodbye to somebody, so like, let's say the whole family's getting together for like a family birthday party. Okay. And you need to leave at five o'clock. You've got somewhere to be. So you've got, you got to pull out of the driveway at five o'clock. You better get up and put your jacket on and start saying your goodbyes at four (laughs) o'clock because you're going to, you're going to stand up and you're going to, all right, it's time to go. And somebody's going to come over and they're going to want to, oh yeah, let me catch you up about Susie and her play recital real quick and so it takes you an hour to an hour and a half sometimes to like get from your seat to the door because of the minnesota goodbye so that's how i try to handle our podcast episodes that's great is at like the 45 minute mark i'm like all right well we should probably wrap it up in 15 or 20 minutes i'm so glad that i actually know what that means now because now i can identify it when it happens and that's true i always just thought that was like what happens when good people that you enjoy get together it's like impossible to leave because every little words spurs another conversation yeah it's not just restricted to people you enjoy though it happens with people you don't enjoy too <laughs> it's it's almost more prominent with the people you don't enjoy because uh, in the midwest there's such a like impulse to be like overly polite to people really in 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 new england my experience is like all right i'm leaving and you just get up and go yeah like, you don't right. you don't care what they think who cares what they think but in like the midwest it's so like well i have to be so polite to these people so you know i better like I better like ask them how they're doing and like ask them something about their life before I leave. Cause I don't want them to think that I don't care, even though I don't care. I don't want them to think I don't care. So like sometimes it's actually more prominent with people. You don't, you don't really want to hang out. Wow. That's a lot of pressure. Yeah. The man moving to new England was like a whole, it was like moving to Africa for me. <laughs> it was totally different. It was a totally different culture out here. Wow. I'm just saying that seems like a lot of expectation and pressure. That's like Catholicism right there. Yeah. It's like a treadmill all the time. It is. uh, It is just like a social treadmill. So I would say one thing that people could do that would be super polite, no matter where you live is to share this episode. Yes. How about it? How about this? The next time you're in a heated argument with somebody online, 
and you just want to strangle them. You just want to like choke them until they agree with you. You know what's going to happen. Instead, instead of choking them till they agree with you, share this episode. Listen, go back, listen to it again. Pray for them and give them this episode, and then agree to come back together the next day and have a good, friendly, brotherly discussion about it. I like that. And see, you can use the awkwardness of that as like make us the excuse for your awkwardness in suggesting that. I mean, this it's we're kind of being tongue in cheek, but it's a real thing. If we're yeah. really going to try to to do this thing and love each other and be bound in holy fellowship and communion, then we should really try to do it. Yeah, and it's not easy. Yeah. Also. The only way people learn about our little tiny podcast is if you share it. Yeah, we don't do any real advertising. No, because what would we advertise? You've you've already listened to us. This is True. as good as it gets. It's not going to get any story. better than this. Oh, that's interesting. No, no, sorry. <laughs> In terms of like the amount of marketing, creative ability, and advertising oh, you yeah, could expect, yeah, yeah. it's happening right now. This just in, Jesse just announced that our show is downhill from here. <laughs> Man, I'll tell you what, between the fact that I got like the most epic leg cramp somehow in the middle of what I was saying, which is super embarrassing. Yeah, it can't get any worse. It can't. Well, on that note, until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Ah.